Wonderful. Great to see everybody. Uh, oh, take your Bibles and open to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8. Great opportunity to be back in the Word of God and resume our exposition of this wonderful book. I hope that you've had a wonderful week. I hope you've had the kind of week that has left you longing for the presence of Jesus. I hope you've had the kind of week that has left you hungry for the Word of God, because the Lord's Day, when we come together on the first day of the week, is meant to be a day of fullness, a day of refreshment, a day of renewal, where we fill up our souls and enrich ourselves in the Word of God. And so I pray that as the days roll on and the weeks unfold, that your heart would long with great expectancy when we come together for uh, hearing God's word and to sit beneath the authority of his word. And so I pray that will be true for us today. Let's, uh, let's read our text for today. This is Isaiah chapter 8, beginning of verse 9. We're going to go down to verse 15 today, beginning in verse 9. This is what the word of the living God says. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For thus says, or thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and grace that you have sustained us, Lord, all these days. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our midst. We pray that you would be exalted as the Lord of the church and Christ, the head of the church, under your authority and your power, beneath your marvelous word, Lord. We, we speak and we listen and we live And so we ask God that you would help us then to come into greater conformity to your truth. We pray that you would help us to hear the words of the prophet. Help us to hear the words that are spoken here regarding the great prospect of salvation and also the great threatenings of your law. We ask that you help us now. Give us grace to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. Keep me from error and keep us from presumptuous sin. We thank you. We ask you to be merciful to us now as we hear your word because your word is heavy, Lord. There's a great gravity to your word. And so we ask that you would just give us the grace that we need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin today open up with a quote from a book that I recommend to all of you. I've recommended it before, and I have quoted it before in part, and here I want to quote it uh, in its full context. Wish that everybody could hear this. But it's it's a quote out of the book written by David Wells. I just tell you the truth. Get everything David Wells has ever written. (laughs) Yeah. This book is entitled, God in the Whirlwind, How the Holy Love of God Reorients Our World. 
See, I'm quoting this because I think this is a proper estimation as to the place in which we find ourselves here in the history of redemption and in the history of Israel at this time. It sort of captures the spirit of what we're dealing with. And so, David Wells says this regarding our own time. Quote, We know ourselves now to be on a fast-moving train hurling down the tracks. And it is absurd to think that by leaning over the side and digging our heels into the ground, we could have the slightest effect on the train's velocity. People sense this. Many do. There is a panic in the culture because we know that our era is ending. Our horror movies are not just stories. They are a kind of mirror of ourselves. They surface the inchoate sense that we have, a sense of dread, the sense that all is not right in the world, that out there is a lurking menace whom we cannot see. We intuitively feel that a terrifying calamity looms over us, but we just do not know quite, we just do not quite understand what this is or even where it is. We'll come back to that quote in a moment. But suffice to say that that is exactly where uh, Israel and Judah find themselves right now in their situation. There's an inchoate sense an uneasiness, a sense of dread that their time was ending. But to demonstrate that, God wants to make it clear that in the midst of all of this potential calamity, He is God, the creator of all things, and that His people, as they face tribulation, They are not to look to any other cosmic power, nation, king, mental safety net. He is creator. He is redeemer. And he is the consummator of all things. The true king of Israel is also, therefore, the revealer. He alone held their times in his omnipotent hand. And to illustrate this about himself and to provoke his people unto faith, God reveals the redemption stone, a stone of offense, a stone that will either be for great refuge or for terrible retribution. Isaiah sets out three crucial factors that we're going to be looking at here, the outworking of God's sovereign plan. And in the course of this, Isaiah is going to give us the remnant and their protection. Isaiah is also going to give us God's revelation and the need to discern it. And finally, he is going to give us the Redeemer as he is foretold. First then is the the promise of protecting the remnant. Really, in one sense, this is a taunt of the wicked. The wicked think that because they are encroaching upon the people of God, that they are in control. And remarkably, they believe that all of the events that are unfolding in history here is something that they are doing. However, as chapter 10 is going to make plain... All of this is nothing less than the outworking of God's meticulous, sovereign decree. Even as it is in our own day, brothers and sisters, the nations who persecute the church think that what they're doing is bringing about their own sinister plans, but it is not so. Even in the midst of that, Even as they come to certain justifications for their actions, whether religious, theological, sociological, spiritual, economical, 
God is the one who ordains the suffering of his people and he controls, he is the alpha and the omega of our suffering. Do you believe that? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, because this is not just something that was happening in ancient Israel as God ordained the upheavals, the rising and fallings of powerful nations that often came against his own kingdom, but he ordains it in our own lives. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, you know this passage. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The verse that Brother Landon read for us. Verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents those that persecute the church, which the phenomenon of the persecutor is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, watch this now, and that too from God. God ordains that 200 million Chinese Christians live under the tyranny of communism on their way to glory. He ordained that. China's not in control. I don't care what kind of facial recognition technology they install in society. God has ordained the suffering of his people because remember, brothers and sisters, we are connected to the suffering one. How dare we think ever that the church will ever arrive at a place, as Paul tells the Corinthians and rebukes the Corinthians, that you would ever think in an over-realized eschatological fashion that you have already begun to reign such that you are no longer subject to suffering in the manner that your master suffered. We are way off course if we think that is the future of the church. Far be it from that. Jesus himself says, if they hated me, I tell you before it happens, they will hate you. And who of us would not say all the sufferings of the Savior were ordained by God? I mean, Arminianism only goes so far. What are you going to say? The cross... It's just an accident. God didn't ordain that. He didn't plan that. He didn't decree that. He's not sovereign over that. Of course he is. But for us, look at what Paul says here in verse 29. For you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only that you believe in him and Oh, the precious privileges that come to us by virtue of this union with this faith union with Christ not only that but also to suffer for his sake and Paul talks about it like it's almost a gift it's been granted to you try that at your next Christmas party write somebody a Christmas card it has been granted to you to suffer One commentator said, it is God who sends the persecutions the church must undergo and the solid resistance with which they have to confront them and the assurance of salvation which follows it. Taken from the context of Isaiah here, there is something eschatological going on. Going back to Isaiah in the text, there's something at work here because if you notice This stretches beyond the boundaries of Israel. Look at verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, and shattered. Give ear all the remote places of the earth. It's almost as if all of humanity, there are universal cosmic implications for what is going on right now in the history of Israel. This will be far-reaching. And it's not a surprise, given the 
prophetic nature of the text, the all-determining prophetic work that will result in either the deliverance of those who through faith are trusting in the promises of God or those who will be destroyed by stumbling over the prophetic word. The entire ministry of Jesus will be bound to this prophetic work of judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. You want to see the depth of that, just pick up Jim Hamilton's book, uh, Biblical Theology of Death, uh, Judgment and Salvation, how that's all worked out. Just look at that. That's a uh, tremendous work on that. But that, uh, that's really what uh, Jesus came to preach in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was an outworking of this very thing. At this point, the nations may take up their cause against God's kingdom, and yet they will be shattered. Syria, or Aram, Israel to the north, they can do whatever they want. They can gird themselves, and the whole language there of girding yourself, the metaphor there is preparing themselves for battle. But that will not stand. That, those plans will be thwarted. Those proposals will be done away with. They will not stand. And the reason why is because of the principle of Emmanuel. Now here, there's a bit of a play on words because as you can see in your text, verse 10, the word Emmanuel is not there, but it says God with us. That's because instead of the technical name, uh, the prophet here uses the word that actually means Emmanuel, which is God with us. Instead of using the name, he uses the same phenomenon because this is the principle that will protect the remnant. God with us. And in the New Testament, the principle at work here in the history of Israel finds organic expression in Paul's theology of the elect. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Just to show you how practical this is. Romans chapter 8. Like Isaiah, Paul the apostle sees the sovereign protection of God over his people as God's people will endure through a litany of afflictions, and yet God is with us. That means that He alone is in full control of our future destiny in this world, come what may. Beginning in verse 31. You know this text. We comfort ourselves with it all the time. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And that reference there to election, if you know anything about the theology of Romans, going all the way back to chapter 8, is consistent. The elect is the remnant. The elect is the chosen. The elect is the foreknown, the predestined, and the call, and the soon-to-be glorified. That's the elect. That's who's chosen. God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death. All day long, and if you have an NIV Bible, bad translation. Because the NIV Bible, not, no condemnation, but just if you are NIV positive, you can be healed <laughs> by going to the store and buying yourself an NASB. Or an ESV, because that's the more popular one or whatever. The, the NIV says we face death. That is not what the Greek word means. It literally means we are killed. Okay? Yeah, tell that to the, ma to the martyrs. Yeah, you just faced death. No, no. No, he died at the stake. I mean, let's just say what happened. He says we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, brothers and sisters, 
This is where the point of faith comes in. We are, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And when it says we overwhelmingly conquer, where's the overwhelming? Where is the overwhelming when Stephen is being stoned to death? Where is he overwhelmingly conquering when his blood is running in the streets? It must be that we are so safe in him that 10 trillion sons could not extinguish the communion bond of fellowship between God and his people. We are, in a sense, invincible. You can do missions when you believe that, right? You can go to the ends of the earth when you believe, I am invincible until God brings me home. And even then, do what you will, I'm still overwhelmingly conquer. That also means in 10,000 years from today, when I am ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ as his prophet, priest, and king in his kingdom, oh yeah, you better believe it, baby, I overwhelmingly conquer in Jesus Christ. But we're so terrified of death. We're so terrified to suffer. Why do you think so much of the Bible is geared to preparing us to suffer? So we're just not good at it. We conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the whole conflict. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. The protection of the remnant is not merely the response of spontaneous events that are unfolding throughout redemptive history. It is part and parcel of a greater strife, of a greater messianic conflict, of a cosmic battle that goes all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3.15, and the hostility, the enmity that exists between the serpent seed and the seed of the woman. It goes all the way back to that. And all of this hostility leveled against the people of God, therefore, is owing to a deeper divide between the principalities and powers which are undergirded by a satanic influence. Ephesians chapter 6, 1 John chapter 5. In the Old Testament, we see this in Psalm 2, where the Messiah in his promised coming is to be set against the nations. Look at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? The peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's exactly what's going on in Israel's history right now. To Judah, the nations are taking counsel. Assyria, Syria, Aram, the northern kingdom, and later Babylon. They're all taking counsel against the anointed and his people. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have forgot, uh, begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. earthenware. In other words, clay pots, they're like Tupperware. Right? They're nothing. I remember being in Israel once and we went to Shiloh where the tabernacle once resided and there the tribes of Israel would encamp around the hills and the mountains. It was like a big dome and marvelous. And today you can just go there and just literally with your hand dig through the dirt and you can find ancient pottery. And these are the earthenware, the clay pots that the people would Destroy when the presence of God would come down and consume the offering. Can you imagine such a thing? It's like that. 
Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those. Watch this now, connecting us back to what we're talking about in Isaiah. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Therefore, the remnant will be protected by the promise that is given. And on top of that, therefore, there was necessity to discern the revelation of God. Look at verses 11 through 13 quickly. For thus says the Lord to me, back in Isaiah chapter 8, 11 to 13, for thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people saying you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it it is the lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread and therefore what needed to happen was the people needed to recognize that God has spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Matter of fact, three things come into view here. Number 1, recognition. Number 2, separation. Number 3, conviction. Number 1. The people needed to recognize that the revelation of God had come to Isaiah, and in doing this, they would align themselves with God's authoritative spokesperson, the one who had come from the heavenly council with the decree of the heavenly temple. Chapter 6 of Isaiah. Thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. Now the phrase there, mighty power, hetzah hayada, that phrase literally means God's powerful hand. It was as if God's hand was on the prophet. God had laid his powerful hand on the heart and conscience of Isaiah through vision and dream, through oracle and prophecy, and had assured him of the coming calamity so that Isaiah and what he was claiming was all authoritative. Failure to take heed to the word of the prophet was tantamount to rejecting God himself, himself resulting in, the, in his hand of judgment. Secondly, there was to be a separation. They were, he was to be distinguished. Uh, that is, uh, the, the, the prophet and those uh, that followed in his wake, those who, who he represented, okay? Because if you look quickly with me, chapter 8, look at verse 8, 18 here. Isaiah, it's not just Isaiah himself, but those who are like Isaiah, those who are the faith of Isaiah, those who are called the children of Isaiah. And so Isaiah says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And so that's really Isaiah's disciples, verse 16. Those who are of faith, were to be separate, distinct from all the people. And what was the point of separation? What was it that was to distinguish the people? Well, a number of things. Number one, they were not to go along with the popular culture. They were not to go along with popular opinion. They were not to believe that the uh, political and the international events that were transpiring were nothing but a conspiracy. Go back in your Bibles to chapter 8, verse uh, one and two. Remember there, uh, the prophet Isaiah was to take a large tablet and he was to write on it in ordinary letters and he wrote down, Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz, or swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Why? Because he was announcing the coming calamity. And then there was a reference to Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Why? Because they were probably court officials in the royal court advising the king and such and they were probably you know high level advisors to the nation who had to either come up with a conspiracy or believe in the word of the prophet which they were not ready to do that so they had to say well no there's not really a threat and they kind of spun it this way and sp spun it that way political spin it's been around a long time 
nothing new. This would only be possible believing in this word that Isaiah had given would only be possible by faith. The opposite of Ahaz, the opposite of those that followed Ahaz. Ahaz lacked that faith. And Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, not all have faith. Not all have faith. I mean, you get into discussions like I'm having with certain people right now. You get into discussions and you think faith is just something that is innate in man, just resides in man. It's almost like saving faith is within you. It's just there, ready to be activated. I don't know about that. Faith is not just a virtue in a vacuum. Faith is connected to the uh, indissoluble work of salvation. God doesn't give you saving faith if he's not going to save you. Uh, so you may want to go back and look at that. What does it mean not all have faith? The other thing is this, that at this stage in Judah's history, as things are developing, as the stakes are heightening and the prospect of real doom looms on the horizon, there's the cultural panic that begins to set in on the people. And it will be imperative, therefore, in the midst of all that confusion, in the midst of all that delusion, it will be imperative that the people of God hold fast to the prophetic word, to the promises of God in the midst of their tribulation. How paradigmatic for us. I don't know what is coming around the bend. I really don't. But uh, I don't feel good about it. Um, I don't feel good about it. Sometimes I just look at Eden and I, I think about her future and I just think sadness. You know, it's just not what you see on TV, you guys. It's not what you see in the commercials, okay? It's not even what like Christian literature tries to portray. This is a dark world. This is e the present evil age that we're living in. And if my eschatology is somewhat right, <laughs> bad times are coming. And the Christian church has always held to that position. And I think it's healthy for the believer to hold to that position. Calamity is on the, is, what does is, what is David Wells say? Calamity is looming over us. We all feel it. I mean, when's it going to drop? You know, when's that dude over there in Korea going to, like, push a button? I saw the most amazing footage. A false alarm in Hawaii. Missiles are imminent. Did you guys see this? There's YouTube videos of this. People are putting their children in storm drains in the streets. It's not a joke. They're literally lifting up manholes and sticking their kids down there and their family. Now multiply that times a thousand. <laughs> That's what the Bible's talking about, that when Jesus returns, people will try to hide underground, under the rocks, bury us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Third, in an act of reverential repentance, the people of God were to sanctify the Lord above everything else, and above everything else, they were to sanctify him as holy, as holy. It's almost like this, guys. Look at verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. It's an interesting I'm not going to cover it all right here. i just give you some homework. How do you go from conspiracy, conspiracy, don't say it's a conspiracy, to then the next thing, the explanation of that, maybe it could have been like an explanation of how it's not a conspiracy, but that's not what the prophet does. The prophet says, regard God as holy. Maybe not what you would have expected right after in that, in that immediate context. But it's almost as if Isaiah is being told, look, Isaiah, don't concern yourself with sounding relevant. Don't concern yourself with so sounding tolerant or sympathetic or sophisticated or reasonable or rational or likable or funny or nice or humble or pragmatic or even, put your seatbelt on, or even loving. Concern yourself with sounding like a prophet who above everything else in the face of this impending satanic
satanic invasion by foreign powers sound like someone who believes that God is holy. That's what's going to distinguish you. And as I meditated on this, Perhaps it is because the attribute of the holiness of God is the least, it's almost as if it's, it's the least vulnerable, if you would. Oh, we can twist and turn the sovereignty of God. We can twist and turn the love of God, the power of God, the knowledge of God. But his holiness, how do you mince words with that? I don't know, I just... Who would dare diminish that? After all, it was the very holiness of God that was missing from all of this. Go back to chapter one. I want to remind you of that. This is what they lost. When they lost the holiness of God, the purity of their worship went out the door. Look at verse 13. Isaiah chapter one, verse 13. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my face from my eyes from you. Yes, even if you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And so, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And so the people were to live as though they dreaded God. Their lives were to run contrary to the popular culture. You know, culture can talk a lot about God in a non-Christian way. Talk about how good God is and, oh, the one I can't stand more than all of them. The power of faith. What does that mean? You know, Oprah, Oprah talking about faith and Fox News. You know, I just want to go on and on. Robert's like, but it's so true. We live in this fake culture. Superficial, perfunctory, false, in other words. False, moralistic, moralism. You guys know this. It's in your family. You saw it over Thanksgiving. You're going to see it again, you know, real soon here at Christmas and the holidays, right? You know, God bless you. Oh, yeah, tell me, tell me about God, how holy he is. I dare you to. Next time one of your unsaved family members tells you, yeah, you know, God bless you or God is good. Oh, yeah, tell me about how good God is. Is he so good that he will send people to an eternal hell for their sin? Is he so good that he calls homosexuality an abomination in his eyes? Is he that holy? Is he that good to you? You know. Okay, bye, we're going home now. <laughs> I'll take my pie to go. <laughs> you know how that goes. But it is precisely this point that the culture deems intolerable of us. It's like you can talk to people about God and all kinds of stuff. Christian culture, Christian movies, you know. You can debate, get into philosophical discussions. You can talk about many, many moralistic points, but this is the point they just can't wrap their brain around, i.e. the holiness of God. First Peter chapter 4, beginning of verse 3, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. And that will become increasingly true as Sinclair Ferguson said in his, back in his home in Scotland that so further than we are now, you know, kindergarten, Boy is a girl and a girl is a boy. There are no 
PTA meetings about that. It's just the culture now. I just read these articles where now, you know, they're giving these children puberty-blocking hormones. Even in their prepubescent age. I know it's disturbing, but man, we got to talk about it. How's the church going to prepare for this? Paul was not playing around when he says in the last days, listen to the word that he uses, fierce times will come. Fierce. You ever seen fierce? Tornado F5 is fierce. That's what I think of. Remember, went to Joplin. Juan, remember going to Joplin? We went to Joplin to help with the tornado, uh, uh, you know, recovery and everything they were doing and to witness. And I saw fierceness there. You know what I saw? The tornado in Joplin was so powerful, it ripped the grass off the ground. It literally was pulling the grass out of its roots. I thought, wow, look at the power. That's fierce. We're going to go into a time, a culture, I think, where this is going to, this is the kind of fierce sin that rebellion, uh, just total moral anarchy if we're not already there. God have mercy. God have mercy. Didn't I tell you guys, I mean, last time I preached at UNT, probably seven or eight out of the nine Christian, Christian students who came to the microphone support homosexuality and will condemn you like that if you don't support it too. Man, when the delusion comes, you would think that it's all delusion. You would think that it's all calamity. You would think that it's all bad. But brothers and sisters, as is the custom of the Lord, right in the heart of all this, God unleashes a promise of the Redeemer. Verse, go back to Isaiah, verse 14. Then he'll become a sanctuary to both houses of Israel, that's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. And I think verse 15 is just giving us, this is what's going to happen in chapter 10. Once Assyria fulfills its role in coming against the people of Jerusalem, then they too will be broken. But in verse 14, there comes a messianic promise, a prophetic promise. Turn to Matthew chapter 21 because there Jesus ties all this theology together regarding this stone, a stone to strike, a rock to stumble over. This was later developed by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, where there he develops the whole notion of the stumbling block who becomes the head of the corner. And Jesus taps into this whole theological tradition and he says in verse 42 of Matthew 21, Matthew 21, 42, I know I'm going long today, but I thought I can do no other, Uh, not today. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. I love it. So that first part, the stone which the builders rejected, he is quoting Psalm 118. And then in the second part of the passage, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That's Isaiah chapter 8. That's the allusion, not a direct citation, but what they would call an allusion back to the text, a summing up of the gist of what Isaiah is talking about. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Ahaz and the majority of the nation at this time therefore represent, as it were, a typological group representing unbelieving Israel. 
And even more than that, even as, as Jesus will apply this through the preaching of the kingdom, this now applies to anyone and everyone who does not come to the stone for refuge. If you don't come to the stone for refuge, then the stone will come to you for retribution. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 because when taken together, Psalm 118, Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 28, no one, no one does a better job of summing it all up than Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 4, marvelous, breathtaking biblical theology here by Peter. Just marvelous because what, what we're given here is that it's not just that the people of God partake in some sort of proximation or nearness, but we even embody what God is doing here as living stones. If Jesus is the head of the corner, if he is the cornerstone of the spiritual building, i.e. the church that God is constructing, the temple of God, we are the stones that comprise that temple in verse 4, Peter says, And coming to him as to, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Wow, li listen to that language, right? The blending of metaphors. A living stone. In the ancient world, when you approach the temple at night, it was comprised of white limestone. And it was lit up by torches all night. And you, ha you have to understand, especially if you were standing in the Kidron Valley, you were down in this little brook, okay, looking up, and at the top of the temple, I mean, you're looking at 15 stories up. It's massive. And they're ascending out of the sky, these beaming white stones of the temple of God. It looked like it was glowing, like it was alive. Jesus is the living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also... As living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's exactly the hope in the most primitive fashion that's being set out to the, to the nation here in chapter 8. Just believe in him. Trust in him and you will not be disappointed. This is why you've got to believe the word, believe the prophecy, and look at for us. Look at the confrontation coming back to us. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, they get the remainder of the prophecy. The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are chosen. Not surprising that he moves from the wicked and their decreed appointment with doom and the elect now, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, quoting Hosea chapter 1. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Love what Brother Brian was teaching in Sunday school today in covenant theology. By the way, I meant to say this because I thought, uh, make sure, what Brian is teaching in there is, such important theology. Please go back and listen to it again. If you didn't understand it, go back and listen to it. If you're not going to Sunday school, shame on you because it's so rich. It's so good. And now you can even come in here and listen to it. You got no excuse. You know what the difference is between the, <laughs> here I go, covenant theology. <laughs> you know what the difference is between the new covenant and the old covenant? Under the new covenant, God will never again say lo ami. That's the difference. If you're in the new covenant through union with Jesus Christ, never again will God say to his people, you are not my people. 
That's the difference. And so, taken together, as I said, Peter gives us a lot to think about. The confrontation here to us is, is this stone, verse 7, precious in value for you? Are you taking refuge in him? This entire messianic theology, therefore, is a crisis of faith. Like Ahaz, will you refuse the sign of the Lord and perish? Will you chalk it all, chalk it all up to conspiracy and religious quackery? Or like Isaiah and his disciples, will you trust and treasure the precious stone who was tested for us? There's something about this stone theology that is so logical and why the apostles and prophets used it because within the theology of the cornerstone, the stone, the tested stone, what do we see but the dual estates of Christ, the stone that is tested, stricken, is the same stone that is exalted and glorified as the head of the corner. We have the whole gospel right there in the stone theology. Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, his suffering and his consequent glory. Will you be identified with the consequent glory? consequent glory of Christ? It depends. Will you be identified with the sufferings of Christ? Will you identify with him in his humiliation, in his humility, in his death, his burial? If you will, as Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Or to use the language of Isaiah, he will divide the spoil with us upon his conquest. Let's pray. Father, there are really only two choices. Will we take refuge in the prophetic word when great delusion is unleashed upon the church and the culture and Give us, Lord, clarity. Grant that we would have discernment, that we don't lose sight of the truth. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to make a commitment now, to resolve in our hearts now, to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts, so that when the water rises and threatens us even to the neck. We will not be undone. Pray you strengthen us by your spirit, Lord, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.